0: In the United States, just 6% of college faculty members are black. And in certain fields, that number gets even more stark, like in mathematics, where fewer than 1% of all doctorates in math are awarded to African Americans. While undergraduate student populations have become increasingly racially diverse, the professoriate has not kept pace. It's a really tough career pathway for anyone. But as we'll learn from my guest today, there are so many additional hurdles to clear if you are black. Some of these are clear and visible some harder to see coming, all of them are part of the racist structure of American higher education. Tenured faculty, and especially those who grant tenure, are guardians at the gates of what we value as knowledge worth knowing and the ways in which we come to know it. So why has it been so hard to move the needle on expanding the racial diversity of this guardianship? My guest today, Marlena Doubt, professor of African Diaspora Studies at the University of Virginia, is the author of many books and articles about Haiti, as well as a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, where she shares her own tenure-track truth called Becoming Full Professor While Black. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college counselor who's interested in learning and sharing all kind of details about the college experience, the approach to it, and some of the places it can take you after your undergraduate experience, including the continuation of your higher education and on into the faculty yourself, perhaps, as was the case with my guest, Professor Marlena Doubt. Subscribe to the show, leave a quick review in Apple Podcasts, that'd be super helpful. Uh, I hope you're all safe and as sane as possible during these times in which we find ourselves and that you're in a position to add your voice and your actions to the chorus of those asking for change to the racist structures, propping up our institutions across society, including the one we'll talk about today. Uh, Before you proceed too much further, please take a moment to peruse Professor Doubt's website, HaitianRevolutionaryFictions.com, to learn more about her really interesting research into novels, short stories, novellas, poems, and plays pertaining to the Haitian Revolution, which in August of 1791 was the world's first and only really successful slave revolt. Uh, One with massive global implications for the time period then and with repercussions lasting into the world of today. Shortly after the country and then the world really erupted in opposition to police violence and structural racism following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers, the hashtag Black in the Ivory emerged on Twitter, and thousands of black academics shared their stories of racist incidents that they experienced in the academy. Take a quick perusal through those stories on Twitter, and you'll realize that the stories Professor Doubt shares in her article for the Chronicle of Higher Education titled Becoming Full Professor While Black are more the rule than they are the exception if you are in fact attempting to become a tenured faculty member as a black person. The pathway to a secure job among the tenured professoriate is Byzantine. It's based on the subjective decisions of relatively few people, the overwhelming majority of whom got to where they got thanks to a system built by people that look like them and who have backgrounds that are similar and more familiar to them. As a newly minted assistant professor on the tenure track, you're obligated to publish or perish and balance writing tons of articles for journal publication with developing and teaching classes, the evaluations of which are subject to the whims of your students and whatever biases they may bring with them into the classroom. You've also got to balance these things with any other departmental duties as assigned and with politicking within the department that will ultimately determine whether you're granted tenure. And there are so many ways that this already extremely long and complicated pathway to a secure career in academia is made that much longer, more complicated and painful if you are black. I know about this firsthand as my own wife has experienced these realities in multiple ways and at every single stage of her graduate education and employment in academia. I've talked about this topic before. Uh, with Professor Mary Beth Gassman, formerly of Penn and now at Rutgers University, who wrote a powerful op-ed for the Washington Post where she writes, the reason we don't have more faculty of color among college faculty is that we don't want them. We simply don't want them. I encourage you to read that piece and listen to my talk with her too. I only had two black professors in college. Neither of them were women. In the two years of graduate school, Uh, I had two black professors who were women. Neither of them were tenured. I encourage you to think for a moment about your own college experience and whether you had any black professors. Who were they? And what did you know about their path into that job? Here in my talk with Professor Doubt, we talk about her pathway to eventually obtaining tenure, but also her scholarship on Haiti, why it's important for us in the United States to learn about Haiti, and what kinds of things may need to change in academia to make the pathway easier for black academics wishing to join American academic departments. I spoke with her via Planet Zoom from her home in Charlottesville, Virginia.
1: Hi, Hi. there we go. How are you? I'm okay. How are you?
0: Live and direct from someplace (laughs) cooler than Earth. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, basically. I feel like I live on another planet so much as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. Glad to talk to you. I'm talking to you because I read your article with uh, a real sadness that, that I think most people who read it who... Have any sort of sense of empathy ought to have after reading it, but it came at me from a particularly personal direction because my wife is on the tenure track. She is Puerto Rican. She is Afro Caribbean. She is, you know, one of four uh, black staff members in her department. One of only two or three who are actually uh, faculty members. It's, It's. Amazing to me how strikingly similar your story is to, to what she's going through at the moment. What provoked you to write this article titled Becoming Full Professor While Black and published in the Chronicle of Higher Education on uh, July 28th, 2019?
1: Well, so many things. But, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it was... Um... You know, so people who are on Twitter, and especially academic Twitter, know that every spring, um, and as we kind of filter into early summer, there are all these announcements, right? I'm so happy to announce I just got tenure, or my new job, or I just right. was a full professor. And my friends were, you know, are you going to post this on Twitter? And I really just thought, I mean, I feel like just posting on Twitter is like, yay, you know, and everyone says yay, and that's fine, and that's a way to announce it, but... I also was thinking, okay, maybe I should just do a thread because it isn't just magical and there it happens. Oh. Um, there's an entire process that, that a person, that anybody who's going up for full professor goes through, but then there's all these kind of backstories. Um, and so when I really kind of started to look into, because at first I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to write this thread. Um, I'm, I'm looking at statistics for how many... Black professors. How many black women professors? I'm seeing all this news out of England about two black female full professors in the whole country. You know, at, at one point, point. Um, and I'm thinking, how can how can it be though? Because um, it's 2019 then, and so um, I wrote to the Chronicle and I said, you know, I'd like to write a piece about this, kind of using my own experience, and it went from there, and. Um, regarding what you were saying earlier about the similarity of experience with um, people, you know, it's, that was what really surprised me. I would say the most is that I received hundreds of emails, even dozens more messages on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, with people saying, Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. All these things happened to me. Wow. And I've, just thought to myself, how can it be though? In fact, even the one anecdote that I thought was like so particular to my case, which was about the Ford Fellowship and having faculty say, my colleagues say like, what's that? You know, um, that that happened to another person who then had to enlist the help of other colleagues to explain that the Ford Foundation, that this is a prestigious enough fellowship for them to allow her to take it. And I was just baffled that this, I just don't understand it. It's amazing
0: to me. I mean, and my wife was a Ford fellow too. So, but the, but the parts that you mentioned that you're talking about in your articles, you talk about a white male faculty's member, $5,000 internal research award being loudly trumpeted across a departmental email list while uh, nothing was said about the fact that you'd been awarded a $40,000 Ford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship. So uh, I have a lot of questions about all of uh, these things, and uh, I want to dig into it, but I want to back up and, and learn a little bit more about your your pathway um, and kind of how you got to this point, because uh, it is a, a long and winding road, right? Um, so what I want to know about is, uh, so first of all, tell, tell me about your scholarship.
1: I'm a Caribbeanist. Um, I work on the French um, speaking and Creole speaking Caribbean, um, mostly on Haiti, but, um, and I was kind of trained in, in quotation marks um, in literature. And so that is also kind of a part of the piece is that trying to work on the Caribbean while the, you know, the literature departments, most literature departments are are structured so that you work on a country attached to a language and that country attached to the language if you're in an english department usually has to be england or the united states and mm-hmm. so regardless of if you said i want to study south african literature they'd be like great you're going to specialize in 20th century british literature and then you're going to do your south african on the side because the thing that you are constantly told over and over again is you have to get a job, so you have to be kind of like mainstream, and you have to work on the canon, et cetera. But so I wanted to work on um, the Caribbean, and I was reading, you know, I I read anglophone Caribbean writers and. Spanish-speaking authors and French-speaking authors. And so there was this way in which at Notre Dame, I was in this one bubble, but within a larger bubble. And so the one bubble was my advisors and people I took courses with who were hemispheric American studies, comparative American studies, comparative literature, very, very supportive. And then I would have to go back to the department for something like a fellowship Mm -hmm. to be judged by the broader department um and
0: so that's so and so so just to provide context notre dame is where you got your phd
1: yes okay yes and so it was and i and i think that maybe a lot of people can relate to this is that you know there's there are pockets you know you can go to particular conferences that are about your area of study and you're like everything's great but then you go to the big one mla and you're at the panel they put you at 8 a.m and there's two people there and you're not networking as you're supposed to do because, you know, so that's just a long way of saying that, yes, I'm a comparative Caribbeanist. I work on the Haitian revolution because I did have supportive advisors and uh, and I work on Haitian intellectual history and I also work on U.S. African-American and just kind of the African diaspora more broadly um, and ways that Haiti intersects with the African diaspora. I've been very interested in how... Haiti has been read in various circles and how Haitians have themselves responded to different groups kind of pulling at their history from all different directions.
0: How does, um, because you've got appointments both in African-American studies and American studies. Why is Haiti important to the United States in in its history?
1: So, I mean, yeah, the issue about sort of, I've, I've always had a joint appointment except for in my first position. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, when I'm in American studies, I'm like, well, African-American studies is a part of American studies. And basically everyone in our department also does either African-American studies or addresses questions of race, et cetera. And then there's the African-American studies department, which is, yes, there's a U.S.-based faction, but then there are Caribbeanists and there are people who work um, in on various countries in the African diaspora. And so it is um, African-American is sort of, I mean, I think that's probably why most departments now are called Africana studies or African diaspora studies to Mm -hmm. reflect that really transnational aim. But I would say that the American studies part is also pretty transnational in the sense that we also have people working on Cuba and then me on Haiti, Mm -hmm. uh, people who address, you know, the history of Mexico, et cetera. Haiti is important to kind of the making of Africana studies as a field and American studies as a field, but that has shifted kind of over time. So um, part of what I look at is stock narratives that people have about how Haiti was, uh, the the notion of Haiti's freedom was received in the 19th century. If you go by the titles of lots of books, you'll see, oh my gosh, everybody was afraid of Haiti. But of course, for African-Americans, black American writers in the 19th century, Haiti was the beacon of freedom. They were writing tons of positive things about Haiti, and also could be interlaced with criticism because it was a kind of genuine, authentic way of treating Haitians as fully-fledged people. It didn't have to be hyperbolic on one end or the other. And I would say that American studies is later to the sort of recognition that it wasn't just everybody was afraid of Haiti, that lots of people, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, interacted with Haiti And treated Haitian rulers and Haitian people as if they were full players coming to the table with ideas um, and things that that they could learn from. So that's kind of what my work is really about in both of those separate arenas converging together, which is how did people read Haiti in the 19th century beyond just, "Uh uh-oh, we don't want that to happen in the United States or in Jamaica or Cuba?
0: For a variety of reasons. I would put good money on the fact that the overwhelming majority of American high school students are not necessarily exposed to Haiti at all. And when they are, it might be because there's a big earthquake or some other reason, but generally they're not. And the place where you teach, University of Virginia, a lot of white people there. And uh, the population of African American students is about 6.5% thereabouts. Um, And over time, it doesn't look like it's Really gotten much better uh, than that. It's sort of stayed pretty flat, I think, over over time. How do students find their way to you and the stuff that you study if they've never been exposed to it and they have no idea or reason behind, you know, to 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 regard this as information they ought to have?
1: It's actually remarkable because when I teach Caribbean literature, when I teach any, basically every class I teach ends with a student saying how come I never learned about this before? So I teach a class called um, History what of Abolition. What do Abol- you tell them? <laughs> I say, I mean, because it, it will come up at various moments that, well, and the first thing is, I teach a class called the History of Abolition in the Americas. So we talk a lot about slave revolts and rebellions because one of the things I'm doing with this class is showing, yes, abolition was a movement. But it was also, that was like one part of it. There was also this kind of on the ground abolition that happened when people ran away into the mountains and made themselves free. For example, the Jamaican Maroons and negotiated with authorities a separate sense of freedom Mm -hmm. and a separate kind of rules for themselves. Um, It happened to a lesser extent with Maronage and Saint-Domingue. Maronage existed, but the kind of negotiation with the government about it happened uh, to a lesser extent. And then of course, in the United States, they know a little bit about the Underground Railroad. They know especially here in Virginia, they've heard the name Nat Turner, but they, and John Brown, for example, but they are used to thinking of these as kind of like isolated incidents and not as sort of um, a kind of larger network in which abolition occurs on a daily basis by people who just proclaim it and and capture it for themselves. And, um, And so then when we get to the Haitian revolution in a class such as this, or in my Age of Revolutions class, or in my early Caribbean literature class, the students are like, how did I not know that there was this like enormous thing that happened in Haiti that shook up the entire world, that people kept talking about it for over a century. That during the Harlem Renaissance, black writers were obsessed with it. They were writing about it and the negritude movement, you know, things that they've heard of. So that's why they're really surprised. They're like, I, I read about the Harlem Renaissance. I know a little bit about negritude and still I know this piece. And And that really just goes to show you that you know, you could teach a whole class on the Harlem Renaissance, and you could never mention Haiti. You could just select all the texts that that were Haiti's not mentioned, right? You could leave out Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, or you could leave out James Weldon Johnson, or something. And so that's the history they they have been taught—a history where things were left out. And now the Haitian Revolution actually is an option on the Common Core curriculum. So they have their set, and then they have some modules. So. I've received emails occasionally from teachers saying, oh, would you recommend, you know, this or that, or do you have any materials? And then when I would kind of do what I think they probably were doing too, search the web and see, I would say, oh, there really are not really standard good materials. There's this education article that I wrote about where the author is, you know, a professor of education. He's criticizing this, by the way, that students are role-playing the Haitian revolution and that one sort of suggestion in some of these teaching materials was to role play as enslavers or as people who were enslaved. Sounds problematic. Were traumatized after that because they had been reading about all the tortures. And so they either, some of the black students were asked to be enslavers too. So that, you know, Mm -hmm. and so the article was basically don't do this. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, don't do that. But what do we do? And I actually wrote a piece about it. It was just published um, last summer called teaching perspective. Um, the relation between the Haitian and French revolutions. Because that is also, I think, another problematic thing is that a lot of times when the Haitian revolution is taught, it's taught as an outgrowth of the French revolution. It's this copy that's like way more violent, except it, and anyone who knows anything about the French revolution knows that it's kind of harder to be like more violent than guillotines constantly. But, But this is... This is the the way the history often gets taught.
0: Sure, sure. So were you introduced to these subjects as an undergraduate? looks like you went to Loyola Marymount in L.A. Tell me a little bit more about your experience as an undergraduate that maybe planted the seed for you to to, to end up in academia.
1: I was not introduced to, despite majoring in English and in French, I was not introduced to the Haitian Revolution in any way that was more than it was in a passing mention in a book. And we just, you know, I mean, my family is Haitian, so I knew what it was, but it's not, we didn't talk about toussaint denis different- Where did you grow up? I grew up in California, so I also grew up far from kind of the Haitian diasporic community. And these are names, there are songs with Toussaint, Dessalines, et cetera, in them. And Wyclef Jean came out with famous songs. I knew like the broad strokes of the history, but I had no idea myself as an undergraduate of the magnitude. And I, I had a professor in the French department who was from French Guyana. And I remember when we studied abroad, we were sitting outside in this little foyer. And he was talking to a bunch of us and this was, we were studying abroad in Paris. And... Um, he said, you know, oh, like the Haitian revolution. And I said, like, I don't know that much about it. And he said, that's, you know, a travesty. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. he basically proposed some readings to me. And that was actually the first time I had ever heard of Frantz Fanon, you know, either. So, and Aimé Césaire, like I went to uh, Paris and, you know, I had this luck to have this instructor who was like, here are some things that you're going to need to read. And I just couldn't get enough of them. I had read um, Edriche Danticat, but she hadn't written... She had written Crick Crack and maybe a few other things, but she hadn't written things that were specifically about the Haitian Revolution yet.
0: So what kinds of advice and mentorship did you get as an undergraduate in college that might have influenced your decision to go into into academia?
1: I would say, especially in the French department at LMU, we had just it was, there was such a sense of community because it was a smaller, so it was actually a modern languages department and then there there were the specific sections. And um, that was where I got kind of my, education in kind of like anti-colonial thought and in pushback against most of which had to do with because the professor was a specialist on Vietnam um, most of which had to do with kind of the French presence in Vietnam and I mean I was like an anti-colonialist like this is awful you know you're reading about this and then Algeria and so most of my background in the kinds of stuff that I would come to study came from being a French major at LMU and reading stuff again like I said that really didn't have anything to do with Haiti didn't have anything to do with the 18th or 19th century but that was more broadly about colonial presence because in the English department there it was more of just of you learned the classics and you read you know your Chaucer and your Shakespeare and so yes there were critiques of race to be made and we read Faulkner and you know it was California is not a place that's afraid to criticize slavery like nobody's afraid of doing that you know but but it still was not it was not the way that you can in graduate school for example go really really in depth and so i would say it was not until i got to graduate school that i really got the kind of background to be able to fully flesh out and bring it to kind of earlier, bring my interest to earlier periods in in the Caribbean history.
0: Did you have black professors? Did you have black professors in in these departments that you studied? And what degree of awareness did did you have at that moment about the dearth of black people in academia?
1: So I did have Black professors at LMU in both the English and the French departments. I'm trying to think if I knew if I <laughs> had any other Black professors outside of those two departments just did kind of my general curriculum. And I, I don't think so. I had a sense from the French professors because there were only three of them on the tenure track. And one was this professor from French Guyana and or of French Guyanese descent, I would say. I believe he was raised in Paris. But I had a kind of a sense that maybe it was a little bit difficult. There were definitely times where I could see that he was being pulled in different directions. And I remember some of the other professors saying, oh, he really has to get tenured. Because of course, as a as a black student, you're kind of flocking to the other black professors and you right. want their attention and you want you want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And so that I had that sense. And then in the English department, the African-American professors were a little bit more senior. I don't remember any junior professors. So. And they were teaching classes like, um, what was the class called? I think it was called Black Man, White Woman. And you know, like a normal English department at a liberal arts university, you know, classes, 20 people. This class was so popular, he taught it like in a stadium. Mm. Like people wanted these classes. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so I knew that, so I didn't have a sense that like, oh, I'd be like marginalized in the academy if I I study questions of race, because I saw this guy teaching stadium class you know with students flocking into it
0: did you have any sense at all that it was going to present the challenges that it did ultimately present
1: i i did at one moment when and this just kind of i i have heard other people say something like this happened too you know i was re reading all these victorian writers and and romantic writers and I'm reading all this Jane Austen and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe that would be cool to study and um, be then study Jane Austen. And my advisor, my academic advisor, who's not in the English department, you know, you go to them and they help you with your schedule. He said, you know, well, what do you want to do after this? And I said, I'm gonna, I want to go to graduate school, maybe get an MA or PhD in English. Oh, well, you can't study Jane Austen because, they will look at you and they will see that you're African-American and they will expect you to teach African-American literature. And I remember thinking, I mean, I have no problem teaching African-American literature. And I was also interested in that, but the idea that I couldn't be a Jane Austen scholar because I was, I mean, that was the first time and actually used an example of someone this person knew who was Indonesian, but wanted to be a Shakespeare scholar and got a her PhD in in Shakespeare studies and early modern studies and couldn't get a job because everybody's like, can you teach, you know, Asian American literature? And and I remember thinking, oh, so I guess I have to, okay, I have, I can't, I can't be a Jane Austen scholar. Yeah. Okay.
0: Can you give us a sense of what the pathway to tenure looks like after you're an undergraduate? What is the gauntlet that would be scholars have to run?
1: Yeah, definitely. I would say starts on day one. Because, <laughs> so how,
0: because- long, how, how long did it take you at Notre Dame to, to, to finally uh, uh, get a uh, defender dissertation and get your PhD?
1: It was five and a half years. I was determined. Okay. Yeah. Notre Dame, even though you can create this kind of little bubble there and surround yourself with kind of like minded people living in South Bend is really hard. And um, I was from California too. So those were some pretty harsh winters for me. And in fact, today, I mean, those are the hard, I've lived in multiple different places now and those were the harshest winters I've ever had. So well, as I, a, as a,
0: as a USC Trojan, you're, you're going to get any argument from me about <laughs> what goes on at South Bend. So it's all right. <laughs>
1: okay. Yes. That rivalry always strong. My brother went to USC too, but um, graduate school didn't feel as traumatic for me as I know that it has for some of the Black women who wrote to me, Mm -hmm. some who dropped out because the hazing was so bad. And that was partially because I had kind of found these advisors who were like, yeah, this is what you should do, like Caribbean. So I, I had them. I was there at Notre Dame in this really particular moment where this Institute for Latino Studies had just opened up. And so for maybe the first time, there was like more than one, multiple people of color in a cohort and my cohort was large. Mm. Most cohorts were like nine or 10. Ours, for whatever reason, was 18. And so it was large. And so I want to say among the 18 of us, there were four people of color. There were two African-Americans, including me. And then no, in fact, five now that I'm thinking about it. And we hung out and everyone and they were doing really interesting things. And we had this Institute for Latino Studies there. And I felt like things were going to be fine. And I would say that it wasn't actually until I got onto the tenure track that I realized, oh, all the people who were in the English department, but not on my committee, who were kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're letting her do whatever project. Those people are now all in charge of my tenure case. And that's what I would say. It's because the power dynamics in graduate school are totally out of whack. But if you have advisors who have um standing in the in the department even if they aren't you know whatever they whatever their status may be in the broader field if they have clout in their department they're in positions of director of graduate studies director of undergraduate studies people who dole out the money in the classes you you can be insulated from some things but when you're on the tenure track there's no advisor who can step in and say no we're not going to not we're not gonna put doubt about whether this person can accomplish this project. Because I would say that when I laid out my dissertation was when, uh, and my proposal was when the first, like somehow other people in the English department figured out that I was gonna work on not just canonical writers from the United States, that I had French writers in there, that I had Haitian writers in there, that I had other writers in other languages in there. And there's this kind kind of trickle went around. Well, is she ever gonna get a job? And I remember the first time anyone said that to me and I was kind of like, I mean, it didn't seem to me that that was like the end goal of a dissertation, which I know sounds weird and maybe it's a generational thing. I didn't feel like other people in my cohort were being told to craft their dissertation so that they could get a job. They were writing about Melville and if they found like an interesting angle, they were allowed to, because it was just assumed that if you wrote a dissertation on Melville, maybe you were going to get a job. And I remember someone saying, People have to know how to talk to you. If you write about a bunch of writers they've never heard of before, they just don't know what to say to you. And if, you know, this is these, this is a kind of baffling thing to tell a graduate student because there's so much that you don't know you don't even know what that means.
0: Yeah, and it puts the responsibility on you to change not the others, to expand what they know.
1: And you haven't been to conferences, and then of course you realize you get to these conferences and you know you you give a paper and you give it on your topic and the first few times that I gave whatever I said about Haiti, I would get like the same questions. Somebody asked me once, how do people get news in Haiti? And I was kind of like, what What do you mean how do people? Like, it made me wonder, what do you imagine mm-hmm. Haitian life is like? Mm-hmm. Like they just live out in a desert or something and don't have access to TV and phones and, and internet. And and so I would end up ask, um, answering a bunch of cultural questions about Haiti mm-hmm. or the um, sort of cliche that happens almost every time I give a public talk, which is what about the Dominican Republic? Why is the Dominican Republic so much better off than, you know, mm-hmm. and these were things that had nothing to do with anything that I said. So I actually didn't find that conferences were that useful to me.
0: So you, tell me more about what the process of getting a job on the tenure track was like.
1: I went on to the job market for the first time. I guess that was fall of 2007, which is important because it was before the housing market Mm crash. There were jobs to apply for. Everyone in my cohort essentially got a tenure track job. And the thing that people would say at Notre Dame was, we may not get like the R1 job, but we were pretty good at getting like an R2, a liberal arts of state school. It was you mean just, in
0: kind of like a tier one research university or tier two research or yeah, something like that? Okay.
1: There was still at that point, which I think might be, I don't know, but I, from what I can tell is a little bit different now, which is that even if you go to Harvard or Yale, you're not guaranteed a slot mm-hmm. somewhere, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the person from the big state school can compete with you in a way that seemed a little bit more difficult Um through when I was in graduate school, just based on the people who kind of passed through before me and then up my own cohort cohort. But we were really good at getting like liberal arts college jobs, state school jobs, et cetera, and happy in them. And because we had these alums who were telling us, oh, it's great you know, I felt like, oh, I can thrive at like a liberal arts college. And I ultimately ended up at the Claremont colleges for seven years. And I I actually really enjoyed teaching in the liberal arts environment. And so uh, going on the job market, you know, it was like your standard, no one did anything different for the students of color in terms of kind of training us. But at Notre Dame, they did have, you know, workshops for our CV, workshops for the research statement, the teaching statement, um, mock, lots of mock interviews. If you got a job uh, on campus visit, they would give you a a chance to do a mock job talk. So all of that felt, it felt like, okay, things are going to be okay. During the interviews themselves, I occasionally had the interviewer who decided to give me a quiz um, because I went for African-American and U.S. American literature jobs since those were the fields that I Mm -hmm. did for my exams. Um, And there was one memorable interview where person said how would you teach melville and i was like i got this because i had a chapter on melville in my dissertation <laughs> and then said you know how would you teach charles brockton brown oh i love charles brockton brown arthur mervin etc cetera, etc cetera. uh how would you teach you know and it went on for that from there, from there and i was mm-hmm. thinking in my head i wonder if this is normal you know yeah. um and then said okay, okay. How would you teach Nathaniel Hawthorne? And then there I was like stumped for a second because, you know, I didn't read that much Nathaniel Hawthorne in graduate school. And I read what was on the exam list. I've never been a huge Hawthorne fan. And so I was kind of like, well, uh, you know, and I muttered some things. It was like, see, because you can't just talk about slavery all day, but I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I was going to talk about slavery.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then
1: someone else blurted out, um, what about the dead white men? And this was the joke among my friends for a long time. I literally said, oh, I'm totally into dead white men. And the whole, and the room just erupted in <laughs> laughter, you know? And I didn't even do it on purpose. I was just kind of like, I don't know what to say. Right. And I mean, you can tell what a different environment it was because, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is just me being naive, but it's hard for me to imagine someone just saying that and remember this is back in the day when you're interviewing in a hotel room with and you're sitting on a bed basically and Mm. everyone else is sitting on a bed across from you and you're not allowed to do that anymore at the Mm -hmm. MLA it added an entire kind of absurdity
0: of it right yeah so you 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 started at um at uh Claremont graduate university and then eventually went to to Virginia how long were you Virginia before you were granted tenure
1: so actually I started at the University of Miami. Okay. I was at the University of Miami for one year and then I uh, went to the Claremont Colleges at Claremont Graduate University. I was there for seven years. I got tenure at um, and promoted to associate professor at Claremont. Okay. So when I came to the University of Virginia, I had tenure. So they got put it. you back up through tenure. Okay. But you get it before like the process is done before you step onto campus.
0: So let me ask you just just for, for those who have no idea kind of how this works, you know, what are the things that you have to do? Like, what, what, what is it that you get? And, and tenure, you know, I've mentioned it in a couple of different episodes with different professors, sort of what the, the value is of, of having it and why it's there. And they're all, that's kind of its own entire episode, I feel like, to kind of dig into what that's about. But what are the things that that you, that you have to sort of submit to that you have to go through on your way to, to receiving this really big deal kind of designation?
1: I mean, it varies from place to place, but the idea was that you were going to publish a book and like two or three articles, right? Um, And then you were gonna, you know, serve on requisite department and university committees and like give talks, et cetera. And I felt like when I was at the Claremont Colleges that I I was doing those things. um, And, you know, I made sure that I, you know, like submitted two articles and then, you know, I was pregnant. So uh, around the time of my third year review, so I was like, okay, the articles are coming out and then they came out before I had the baby. And like, I felt like, okay, I'm good now. Mm -hmm. I'll take my maternity leave and like, I'll come back and then, you know, everything will be fine. And in my third year review, which happened the semester after I got back from maternity leave, um, you know, everybody was like, "This is great," and I, by that time, I'd even had maybe a third article accepted somewhere, and I was in talks with publishers for the book. I was, I was on the on this role, I felt like, so I wasn't worried because I was like, "Oh, none of those things I've read about faculty of color, none of those things are going to happen to me because I'm doing, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them. You have this idea in your head. I can just show them, right?" And in my third year review, was this one line about how I needed to step up my performance in more national venues, right? And the thing is, is that I was publishing in 19th century literature, in comparative literature, it, but it was it was just this kind of coded language. and mm-hmm. And it was because what had happened before that was, what I talk about in the piece, this one faculty member in particular had just decided that I was not really an Americanist, that I was not doing American studies, that I was doing some kind of foreign thing and she had it out for comparative literature um, and even blurted that out in a faculty meeting. And one of the criticisms I got from the piece was, oh, are these the worst things, you know, that have ever happened to her? Because, wow, that doesn't even sound that bad. And I thought, oh, no, no, these are not the worst things that, have, that there were so many things I couldn't put in because they involved graduate students um, or people we were trying to hire when I was on a search committee. Like people who, you know, even though you veil in whatever, that I just didn't feel right. Talking about kind of my reaction to witnessing things that happen to other people. But this particular, um, I had this in the piece, but then I cut it out for space. I said, Oh, I, you know, I announced my article came out in comparative literature. And the faculty member said, I would really like it if you would publish in American literature journals. We are never going to have a comparative literature program at this university. And you're just, you know, I just, okay. You know, I did say anything about creating a comparative literature program, but so it was. You know, so there were signs along the way, but I really did believe that if I just did what they told me to do in terms of publishing and teaching and the teaching evaluations, that everything would be fine. And it was only at that third year review that I was like, "Oh, like I might do all these things, and then they might just say it's not good enough." And around that time, there were stories coming out of USC about all these women of color not getting tenure like one after the other and that was when i really started i would say the kind of sleepless fears and then also dealing with this faculty member who's you know as i mentioned in the piece sending long emails explaining to me how even if i am teaching it was sim- similar to the interview melville or, or whitman i'm not teaching them right mm-hmm. because i need to talk about x religion or naturalism or whatever it is <laughs> you
0: know? one of the things that i've um talk to my wife about a lot, who studies Puerto Rican adolescent students, So, and was a Ford Foundation fellow and blah, all of these things that, are, that really sound very familiar to your case, um, except that it's taken her longer. She was pregnant, had her, our daughter right uh, before she defended her dissertation, before she went on the job market, uh, a lot of overlaps. And one of the things that that is particularly insidious about the racism in academia is that, I mean, I, there, there've been a lot of moments, including just this week, where there's this, this sense of, of doubt that yeah. maybe they're right, or that, um, especially when the racist language is coded in scholarship terms, right, in academic terms, that uh, as far as these racist scholars are concerned, they're not being racist, they are you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing as guardians of this realm of scholarship. I wonder if you could comment on the extent to which this might have been true for you. Maybe you were, you, you, you struggled to identify kind of what was going on because it was couched in this sort of academic language, which to me just is, is that much more insidious because it not just puts you down, it puts your work down. It puts, you know, especially to the extent that people like you and my wife are culturally attached to the work that they do. It puts the culture down. I mean, just everything. And it's, it's, so it was just a a thought that I had. I wonder what you think about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we, people, I've heard the term used a lot right now, imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm, et cetera, cetera, mm -hmm. especially, um, in relationship to kind of how graduate anxiety is about grad school in general and and maybe even being on the tenure track but i don't know that imposter syndrome quite captures exactly because i'm certain that you know yes as a graduate student when i would be in in a course i would think like i would be oh my gosh did i do the reading closely enough like i'm afraid to raise my hand you know because maybe i'll say something dumb or something like that or, or maybe the professor won't you know think that i've done the work or that i belong here yes certainly but the attacks on the work that are coded, as you said, in this kind of language that couches it in, I'm doing this for the good of the field, made it sound like me, little old me, I'm going to ruin all of American literature and American studies, which is like, or and people like me, which is obviously preposterous. Mm-hmm. But there you are, like, trying to do your work, and you're getting emails, right? Because, you know, bullies, the way that they work is you know, they have to get inside your head. Otherwise, what's the point of being a bully, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got like that one or two phrases kind of going in there. And like you said, it's sort of, it's double, maybe triple or quadruple when it's about your work. It's also, you know, I had these attacks on my teaching. And the thing is, is that especially being younger, um, I was so eager to please that I'm like, can i she's you know can i see your syllabus i want to make sure i'm showing her my syllabus only so that it can be completely deconstructed and i can be told like i don't know anything about teaching and
0: this is before you have tenure right and this is
1: before i have tenure so i am trying not to respond to these emails by the way that are coming sometimes at two in the morning and i or i would try with one line and at, at one point i said thank you very much for your feedback on my teaching which i thought was a very innocuous line. And I got an email that I'm sure if I printed it out would be pages and pages about how it's not about my teaching. It's about how I'm not respecting the canon, how I'm not really doing American literature. How, And then it's, so it was like, there was nothing that I could say because people were telling me, just say, thank you very much for your comments. It's like, no, the person wants an engagement, you know? And so, yeah, you definitely, and I would say I never doubted that my work was important because I was also going out. American studies conferences are amazing, right? (laughs) Like there are people studying all kinds of things at the American studies association. And I had people, even the early Americanists who were seen as very conservative sometimes, telling me, yes, this is exactly what we should be doing. And I remember a faculty member at another university right after I got tenure, who was in American early American studies, called me up and said, you know, we have this position open in American, early American history. And I just, I wanted to check with you because I know you work on the Caribbean, but we've advertised it as early American history. And like all of the applicants are doing Caribbean stuff. She said, the, even the white guys. And I'm like, it is in early American studies. Mm-hmm. Generally, the Caribbean is considered a part of early American history, kind of especially because the United States was not the United. So it, it makes no sense to, to limit, and early American studies to that. And so I was like right before this broader recognition was happening, but there, but in American studies generally it already was. So I knew that there were people who were on my side. Mm-hmm. So it was really a very internal thing that I was fighting. And I would tell advisors and I would tell mentors and they would give me strategies, but they, they can give you a strategy for like not getting yourself into trouble, but they can't, as I mentioned in the piece, you still have to go and write and be around these people in a meeting with all that in your head. And that nobody can, they can't help you with that part. And
0: a lot of these people are ultimately going to be the ones that have the final say about whether you progress in this field. Yes. Right. And so you I mean, I God, the issue of responding to emails, right? Like you, you you want to speak up, you want to defend yourself, you want to defend your scholarship. uh, You know, you want to call people out for what they are. But on the other hand, you don't want to jeopardize your tenure because um, this is an intensely political process. Right. It is not a meritocracy (laughs) that uh, I think it's propped up to be. Um, And, uh, you know, you can feel trapped, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I would say because, um, I mean, that's a really good point also about the meritocracy because it speaks back to kind of what I was talking about in this sort of mode I got into. And I was really jazzed about my research and work too, but like, I'm going to produce all these things. I'm going to show them, right? But then there was this other part. So there's the email part, but then there's also the social aspect. Um, And a lot of the women of color who wrote to me talked about, talked to me about this, even though I didn't really write about this in the piece at all, which was, being invited out to dinner, being a person who the other faculty want to hang out with, and being their friend, right? So this and- is in
0: addition to publishing, in addition to teaching, and getting good reviews, And by mm-hmm. the way, right? Which can, uh, there's studies out there to show that it disproportionately, uh, uh, you know, faculty of color are, are uh, routinely graded lower in teaching evaluations than their uh, majority peers. You have to serve on these different committees and you have to do this kind of stuff, but then you got to schmooze.
1: Yes. And advise students. I had so many graduate students because I was the only person for a long time. Eventually we did hire another person who did kind of some hemispheric American and Latino studies, et cetera. But for a lot who did anything that touched on a question of race Mm -hmm. and literature. So I had all the students who wanted to do that and it was California. So that was a lot, right? So, but then the other thing is you said the schmoozing and it was even beyond schmoozing because I remember someone said to me, trying to be helpful, well, you know, they want to know who you are. They don't feel like they, they know you. And here's, I'm an introvert mm-hmm. I, and I was also back living in California where I knew a lot of people. So I didn't need any, and it's LA. So I had these networks that went beyond the mm-hmm. university. And I didn't live in Claremont so that wasn't my social circle. I didn't move there and like need friends even though I made a lot of friends with the junior faculty who came in the same year I did at the other Claremont colleges. So I did have these sort just in terms of my university and the thing was is that people didn't invite me for dinner. They invited me for coffee or lunch and I would go but and then so it was surprising to me that there, there was this sense of like they don't feel like they know you like as a person because I was like well I mean, I I don't know. Maybe they have. If they have dinner parties, I I didn't get the invitation. This might
0: say this might be a stupid question, but why is it important for them to know you? Why why is that? Why is that? Why is there value placed on that?
1: And I this is what I tell people now that I'm in a position to give some advice. I say. These are your coworkers. They don't have to be your friends. And to require friendship out of your, is a manipulation. Because the, the other thing was, is that, I, and I and, and for the record, if they'd invited me to dinner, of course I would have gone. I mean, why not? I would have mm-hmm. been like, okay, great. You know what? I've looked at it as a social occasion. Um, and, and I did when there was coffees and whatever happening. I didn't realize, understand why that wasn't enough and why knowing some things about my personal life or whatever it is were important. Um, And I I, frankly, I still don't, because this was all exacerbated after I had kids, too, because then I have another set of concerns, the things that I need to like, I'm not seeing even those other junior faculty I've made friends with. (laughs) And they all started to have children and we all start hunkering down on our books. And so we're not being that social. So it wasn't that I wasn't social with the other with the senior faculty. I wasn't being social anymore anyway. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, is this going to be used against me? Because I'm like, okay, I'm already black woman. I already have this person who's like out to get me. Oh, and then I decided to have two kids before tenure. And, you know, another piece that I cut out was when one of my chairs um, said, did you do that on purpose Uh, with this when I got pregnant with my second son? And like, what do you say to that? You know, and I'm like big and pregnant, you know. Well, and I think I just said, well, it it doesn't really matter now because I mean, the the baby's coming, you know, and we laughed. You know, that's that nerve, you know, you just you laugh so many things off. And I look back now and I'm like, that was totally out of line.
0: How many um, of the folks that you have heard from after publishing the piece um, are people that didn't make it through as you did that said, this is this is absolutely too much. It's not worth it. Fuck this. I'm out of here.
1: That was, I would say the most heartbreaking part was the first few onslaught of emails because this onslaught goes on for weeks and weeks. And in fact, still now, you know, out of the blue, I'm getting emails here and there from people. And what broke my heart were the number of people who were like, I'm glad that you were strong enough to withstand this, but I was not. And I am still, I still not over it and I just quit. And then there were other people who were like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can. I'm in therapy, I'm Mm -hmm. taking antidepressants and I'm like, We have to take antidepressants and go into like something's wrong with this picture
0: well listen to the words that you've used here right hazing bullying uh ranting and raving emails at two in the morning in response to some innocuous one-line note that you send to somebody is it any wonder right that some people a lot of people don't want to put up with it anymore, and that this these these tactics, whether they are employed explicitly and purposefully and mindfully or not, uh, do work, do serve the purpose that they are meant to serve. They do. It's a it's an absolute tragedy, and it's uh, hands down. I mean, it's got to be the reason. One of, if not a massive, massive reason that we uh, don't see any more than how many black faculty members do we have in academia now? What's the percentage? It's, it's like
1: uh, 2% or something like that. I think it's 4% just in general, and then like 2% black women at full professor or something like that. It's very, very small.
0: And I mean, do you, and it makes me wonder uh, do you feel a sense of comfort now? on the other side of tenure, you know, you're like, can you, can you exhale? Can you relax? Can you drop your armor? Can you let go? Can you stop worrying about having to schmooze and go to dinner and feel freer in your person?
1: Yes. In my person, in my person. Yes. But in the structure, no. And part of it is that you know, to bring it back to something I said earlier. Okay, so I'm in LA going through all this. I have my family that's from California, so I see my family regularly. And I have friends from un- from elementary school through college because I went to LMU. I have friends. I have lots of friends, right? Now, let's let's take it back to South Bend. Imagine that I'm a Black faculty member and my first job or my job is in South Bend. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons why It is not a problem of Notre Dame. It is not a problem of whatever university here or there. It is a problem of that if you take a black faculty member, you isolate them away from their family, away from their friends. And then the only people that they can talk to are the kind of people that I'm describing. Right. Their social interactions. When I would be social with people who were my friends, I could say whatever I wanted because they weren't in academia, most of them. I knew that I wasn't going to like have an extra glass of wine and like say something and someone was going to use it against me one day. And that's the other thing. When you require junior faculty to hang out with you, do you, you know, senior faculty need to understand they are so terrified that they are going to say something. And it's ridiculous because why should anything anyone says over dinner one day matter to their tenure case? People think it does. And yet they, they don't think that they can use the, you know, someone being, accused of racism against them, or sexism, or worse, sexual assault, or sexual harassment, like, those are the kinds of things that get swept under the rug, or or complaining about racism is also another real fear and threat. And so, in my person, yeah, I I definitely have a sense of, you know, I think pretty much people at UVA know I'm I'm a homebody, like, I'm, I'm not out, you know, doing, I mean, there's probably lots of things to do at night, I... I I prefer to be home with my family and, you know, going on long walks in the woods or country or something. Um, And so, no, I don't feel that pressure to like be social. Um, And I don't, and I don't even feel like, you know, there's anybody trying to force me to do that. I definitely don't. But then I look at, and I, I worry, and I'm sad that when I speak to junior faculty, especially if they're faculty of color, I'm sad when I think that they might be holding back or feeling like, one day I'm going to use some, I'm sad that there's, that, that, that they're going through that too. And so that takes, and is again, another reason why I wrote the piece, it takes like a little bit of the joy out of it because you know that you weren't just so great. That's why you got there, that you were lucky. Mm -hmm. I was lucky that, uh, that a lot of other things didn't at the same time, because if they had, you know, things could have been derailed.
0: Well, and you had your own support network to rely on, uh, that helped. I mean, I think nobody does any of this stuff alone. Right. Um, and I, I mean, one of the things you write about here, uh, is you say that women of color, you know, tenure track faculty of color, uh, in general need institutions that actively combat racism by purposefully reprimanding students, faculty, staff, and administrators who engage in racist behavior. Do you have any examples of this happening in a way that was successful? You're shaking I your
1: really, head. I, I really, I think, and here's the it's thing: it's not like
0: you haven't seen opportunity for it. I've but seen you've never for really seen. Yeah,
1: there have to be consequences, mm-hmm. and that's what I don't see happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think people should be punished. They're paid. I mean, some of some of them should be punished. You know, some people who are really, really engaged in the heavy-handed work of bullying. Maybe they do need like an administrative leave or something to go and and think about their behavior some of the other things like the microaggressions and this and that maybe somebody needs a stern talking to maybe they need you know to go through anti-racist training it's i'm not an expert in sort of like the redress and a kind of the uh, mitigation of such things so those are things i'm just thinking of off the top of my head but i definitely think that the reason um, that this kind of scenario and this situation persists for so long is because there's a lack of consequences that actually feel like consequences to people who are, who are the perpetrators. Um, and there are also, like you mentioned, there are rewards who behave in this way. Because if you keep someone out of the field, there's a feeling that you have saved and preserved and that your guardianship over whatever it is are safe. And I would say the other thing that I noticed that is a problem is people who are identifying, and this is also advice that I give, people who are identifying too strongly with their university. Because if you think that it will be a, an actual tragedy if your department hires somebody who has beliefs that you don't you know, share, if that upsets you, and, and in, unless that person is a Holocaust denier or something, if you get that upset, Over somebody who is like, you know what, I want to study the effects of racism on school children in X city. If that upsets you to the point where you feel like you're preserving all of sociology for mankind, then you are too strongly identified with an institution. And no one should ever be that strongly identified with any institution because they will show you the door. Yeah. And and they when if you if you do enough things, they will show you the door and they'll take things away from you. Um, it, it just all depends on what kinds of things you do, which is what we've now seen with Me Too, which was which is why I know that there can be redress. Because mm-hmm. look at what happened with Me Too. Um, I hate that we call it that, by the way, because I feel like it cheapens it. But these accusations of sexual assault and sexual harassment were finally people saw consequences, even if the consequence was just a public shaming, their name was out there, op-eds written about them. Yep. And yep. maybe, you know, I talk about this with my husband, like maybe a public shaming when someone is engaged in this microaggression of, can I touch your hair? Things that happen to me mm-hmm. and over and over again, can I touch your hair? Never seen hair like this before. It's like, I have curly hair. What do you mean? You know, um, maybe a public shaming is in order, but we still feel we haven't had that reckoning yet where graduate students, from graduate students to undergraduates, to professors at any rank are saying, here are the racists at the university, and here's what they've done. Huh. We have, we don't have that spreadsheet yet.
0: What kinds of things are, do you feel like you're in a position to do now where you are to impact the environment where you work and the experience for students and, and, and faculty and staff?
1: I mean, I feel like if you see, um, you know, racist behavior, you call it out.
0: Have you been, have been able you- to do that?
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, just the other day, I mean, I would not say that I um, I didn't call it out as racism as such, but you pose a question. You pose a question to make the person think. And it was actually effective because sometimes it's not like the person I was talking about at Claremont. Sometimes it's not like this mastermind thing, mania, that the person has and like has attached your face to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's that the person hasn't thought that much about the question. And if you ask a question... They sit and they think, okay. Sometimes that works, and if that doesn't work, I do think that um, tenured faculty, especially the full professors, whether they are people of color or not, have to actually stand up. and I. I told a friend this the other day who said, you know, because right now in this very difficult moment, it's always a difficult moment, but it's compounded by this COVID-19 pandemic, the sort of structural racism and the police killings and all this, because now we have these two viruses, right, contending. Mm -hmm. So I had a friend say, well, what do you think that like I as a white person should do? And I said, you know, I don't want, like, what can I read? I think that's what she said. What can I read? And I said, you know what? I don't want white white people to just read stuff right now. What I want is when we're all sitting at a table and someone's saying blatantly racist, biased stuff, I don't want to be the only person in the room who says something. In fact, I don't even want to have to be the first person because it's tiring. Mm -hmm. It's tiring. And then you are that person. And it becomes easy to dismiss you because just like when you're in that talk, and there's always that person who says, this is more of a comment than a question. And they go on and on and on and everyone tunes them out. Yeah. I do feel like when you only have one person who speaks up about racism, some of the other people, they treat you like the I have a co- I have a qu- comment, not a question person. And it's just want, 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 want until you're done and then business as usual. And I think if two, three people and different people are standing up in a meeting and saying something, maybe they're more likely to listen. I don't know because I've not been in meetings where that's usually happening. Hmm. I've been in meetings usually, and I'm the only person, and maybe there's one other person who is also the only person who ever. So now there's just two people who are always the only people who speak up, you know?
0: What advice would you give to young African-American women in uh, at the undergraduate level who are where you were and are looking down the road and don't have this perspective this this understanding of you know the depth of this gauntlet they're going to run and hopefully it's different uh uh, for them but you know if history is any guide right it's going to be a while for it to change dramatically such that these things aren't happening but what what kind of advice would you give to them and and do you really even do you feel comfortable sort of universally recommending this path
1: yeah. I mean, I career advice would be difficult, right? Because of just so many different kind of options. But I would say just in terms of like pursuing education and then just kind of like being a person in a primarily white um, institution, for example, I would say, yeah, the, the kind of like surrounding yourself with good energy, because I would say that of all the things I did when I was at Notre Dame, the fact that I had this very supportive cohort of people, even some people who were years ahead of me, but because, but in connection, especially with this Institute for Latino Studies helped enormously to drown out the rest of it. And I actually don't think, you know, the New York times likes both sides ism. So does the network news and all this stuff. I actually don't think that you do need to know. I've heard people say, but I I do want to know like those dark web, you know, people, but I don't actually think that you do need to know that. Um, And so protecting your energy, and I would say that um, there have been a lot of times in my career as an assistant professor and then an associate professor even where I didn't do that, where I allowed myself to kind of be around people who were, because not, like I said, not all these people are like malignant, evil people in their beings, right? And you think that you can just drown it out, but then you're like on a run or a walk and you start, it's like a tape, right? and it's going in your head and you're thinking, oh, that person just kind of sees me. It would be moments where I realize the person I'm talking to, every word is filtered through I'm black for them. And it's like when you realize that by something they say, and they just kind of, cause you know, you talk to people and you're just talking to John or, or mm-hmm. Tina or whoever, right? And it'd be something they say and I'd be like, oh, I'm your black friend. Mm. Oh, you know, and, and those moments I would say, and just keeping people kind of like that away from me, I would say, even when I know that they could be like fun or nice or whatever, that it will be too exhausting to have to listen and be reminded constantly that I'm the black friend that they probably trot out maybe when they get accused of being racist, you know, um, or, or prejudiced in some way.
0: Well, I'm going to be sensitive to time. We're a little bit over, but I I, I really appreciate you sharing your story with with me and and with with those who are going to listen. And, and, um, you know, as I said, this is a really sort of personal issue in our household. Uh, You know, it's one that that is resonant in this precise moment, uh, the week of uh, the protests around police brutality and, you know, that virus that you mentioned before i hope that you know because what we're talking about these days is is the structural nature of this that the bullies don't win uh that the hazing doesn't prevail and that everybody can find the fortitude that they need to speak up uh, in places where they know that they ought to where they get that pang you know, this is one of those times maybe that I should say something and that they can stick with it. Right. And and contribute to the scholarship and expand our our our, our awareness of of our world and our, our society and the many cultures in it. So thank you so much for your time. Happy birthday to your son, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. How old did he turn? He turned seven. Yeah. Wow.
0: My daughter is seven. This is crazy. This yeah. is crazy. Too many parallels.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> is he so your only one?
1: No. I oh have right, two. no, you've got two. Yeah. yeah.
0: How old? Nine. Nine. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, um, Professor Marlena Doubt, I thank you so much for your time, and and uh, I'll see how many kids I can send to the University of Virginia to come find you. Okay. Yeah. Go.
1: Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Thank, All right. You. thank you so much. Bye bye.
0: Thanks so much to Professor Dab for her time and willingness to share her story. As you heard, I think once tenure was achieved, it became easier to do so without fear of some sort of reprisal, right, since so much of what governs the actions and behaviors of anybody trying to achieve tenure is going along to get along. Uh, She had to become friends and be socially acceptable to her peers, not just professionally and academically acceptable, right? Academia is just one part of this whole society in which people of color need to bend and stretch, in many unfortunate cases, to the breaking point in order to be acceptable and palatable to fragile white temperaments. We need faculty of color to research their culture and histories in the academy, and to do so without routinely running into the walls of a technical structural framework that was established and has been held up by white academic leadership over the course of centuries. On this matter, after we ended our formal interview, I shared some more personal details of my wife's story with Professor Dow, specifically regarding some pretty painful comments that uh, she, a social scientist, received from a white colleague. And uh, here's a bit more of what she had to say about
1: that. I think in the social sciences, it's worse. The the worst stories I got were from students in the social sciences with exactly what you're talking about, where... And I want to say that this baffles me actually a little bit, because if you are a person of color and you study in the social sciences a community that you are attached to culturally or nationally or whatever right Mm -hmm. that you have some heritage in Mm -hmm. and you study this question they behave as if you are doing what one person wrote to me i had never heard this term before me search they call what you're doing me search Mm. and yet you go to sociologist country uh sociology departments around the country and there will be white people in there who ask questions like hmm does racism affect prescription giving in this? And I'm like, if you have to start a question with just racism, yes, it does. Like, and, and they are doing that research and not being told that it's invalid because it doesn't come with the, like critical race theory apparatus and like the kind of um, affective things that we are taught in Africana studies, in Latino studies that are hugely a part of what we're talking about because It also, it's a structure, but as you know, the entire interview in the piece, it is also very effective Mm -hmm. and it hurts you as a person. So like it hurts you in the structure. You might not get tenure, but it also hurts your feelings. It damages your emotions. It makes you unable to concentrate. And so if you put that into your research is what I've noticed, then you're not doing real research. So there's a way in which in sociology, you can totally talk about race as a structure. And, and it can be fine, but if you get down to the nitty gritty, really, then you're not doing real research, it's anti-intellectual, it's, mm-hmm. and I find that positively baffling. I, I don't even understand how you can forget that people are people when your whole field is to study people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So the issue
0: of diversifying faculty ranks is certainly complex, but it is not some intricate mystery to unravel like quantum mechanics or curing cancer, which, let's be honest, are a couple of humanity's goals, which receive way more structural, academic, financial, and social support than making real change to the actual institutions that study quantum theory and cancer cures. A coalition of faculty members at Princeton, where racist US President Woodrow Wilson's name was recently removed from their School of Foreign Affairs, have put together a plan for changes they want to see made uh, at Princeton, which they say will block the mechanisms that have allowed systemic racism to work, visibly and invisibly, in order for Princeton to, quote, become, for the first time in its history, an anti-racist institution. There's a list of 16 university level demands, 11 faculty level, five postdoc level, four graduate level, and 12 undergraduate level for a highly detailed and comprehensive model consisting of nearly 50 specific demands. And I encourage you all to read it. And I've linked to it here in the show notes so you can check it out. At the undergraduate level, for instance, they've asked to fundamentally reconsider legacy admissions, which accounts for 14% of enrolling students last year, uh, to increase its transfer admit rate from 1.4% to at least match the overall undergraduate admit rate of 5.5%, and to establish a committee to address cases of discrimination in the classroom. I love to quote Episode 7 guest Ben Castleman in saying, shut up about Harvard, or in this case, Princeton, the Harvards of the world, but these are the places that were explicitly established and have served for hundreds of years into today as models of preserving the wealth and status of the American elite wealth and status that were systematically denied and robbed from black Americans. Why not start here, at the beginning? Thanks as always for tuning in. Hope to have more in the uh, not-too-distant future. But dang, I am not quite sure how we keep this kid of ours entertained enough now uh, without the structure of school for uh, so that I can have enough time to, to do it. But dang, man, I am working on it. I am. I am, it's, it's a constant reminder in the back of my head. Thanks to any of you guys who are still sticking with us and listening. I appreciate it. Please stay safe. Stay sane. Um, and, uh, spread love.